0: Hello everyone, I'm Gary Kleiban, and welcome to the 343 Podcast. The following is a discussion stimulated by some commentary between former men's national team player, Hercules Gomez and a pundit that I actually have some respect for, Sebastian Salazar. What's the topic? Well, the topic is why the quote unquote rivalry between MLS franchises, New York City FC and New York Red Bull is failing. And more broadly, why is that the case? If you look at the title of this episode, it states on MLS contrived rivalries. So this will be an exploration on why these so-called rivalries are quite frankly fake. First off, there's a little talk of attendance at stadiums because after all, if it's a rivalry, usually attendance is a metric used as a proxy. Now, that does not mean if a stadium is full, then it is indeed a rivalry. But it can mean that if a stadium isn't full, especially in this particular case, more than half empty, that there is no rivalry here. So you get the full context. You'll also hear the exchange between Herc and Sebi. I think they get it, but it's kind of weird how they dance around the elephant in the room, namely promotion and relegation. You'll see what I mean. There's a few other things Terry and I touch on here. One, the misguided and convenient notion to think one needs a hundred years to develop an authentic rivalry. Two, the misguided and also quite convenient notion to think there isn't a large, strong soccer culture already present in the United States. And then three, have you heard of Chivas USA? You may have heard of Chivas USA. That was the failed attempt to capture the enormous Mexican and Mexican American soccer first communities here in Southern California. All these things are very related guys. Now, it usually takes me a few minutes to heat up and that unfettered passion to start to flow, but man, in every one of these episodes, there's always things, these sensitive things that make one, I don't know, second guess themselves, shit. Should I actually publish this? Shit. Should I actually say this now? Compared to what I can say, it's nothing because there are definitely things that I do not say I've said it many times before in public. I reveal basically like five or 10% of what I could be revealing. And it is for good reason, guys, just like you guys at your job don't reveal 90 or 95 or 99% of what's actually going on there. But compared to what special interests don't want revealed, which would be zero. It is indeed risky, even revealing that 5% or 10% of knowledge, but fuck it. If we're depending on those making a living off MLS or wanting to, or wanting that attention or have been indoctrinated by that media, we'll be waiting a hundred fucking years until the smallest of inconvenient truths are told. But before we jump in, I'll do a couple minute minutes of ads for coaches and parents of youth players looking to solve their soccer problems. These are problems we ourselves have encountered in developing players at every level and, of course, ended up solving to great effect. If you're a coach wanting to implement a possession-based methodology where it's your team that's in control of the match instead of it being the usual back-and-forth random mess that you see here in American soccer, the solution is at 343coaching.com. And, guys... This is coming directly from someone who has implemented the methods, refined them, and helped transform the landscape by showing playing this way is possible with American players in the American landscape. This is not the usual scripted course or presentation regurgitating material from some book, some PowerPoint presentation from a federation, or quoting some famous pro coaches overseas. To successfully implement a legit methodology, you need to witness it, not only visually, but audibly as well. That's what you get at 343coaching.com. You get immersed in the actual team training sessions, all professionally caught on video from Elevation, and Coach Brian's audio captured as well. Again, these are the actual team training sessions with Brian's actual players as they prepare for match play on the weekends and long-term development of their abilities. With well over 1,000 members nationwide at various stages of the program, coach success stories keep coming in. We'd like to see yours as well. Now, if you're not a coach, but a parent, it's no secret the American youth system is screwed up. So you need solutions as well. What team should you play for? What coach is or isn't a good fit for your kid? Should you do personal training? Should you not? What's important to look out for there? What should you be looking for in the near, medium, and long-term? I mean, the questions and circumstances are endless. They can depend on age, level of play, position, club, geography, politics, and so on. But while the context might change, the best way to increase your chance of making good decisions is by developing your skills in the fundamentals. And I'm not necessarily just talking about skills of the player. I'm talking about your skills as a parent making decisions or helping make decisions or guiding your player. In one minute, you can join the email list at 343masterclass.com. When enrollment of the program opens, we'll send you a note. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, my co-host Terry in this episode founded the Accelerator Schools. There's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Com. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. We're just scratching the surface here, folks, but it's an important starting point for us to further expand down the line.
1: Hey, Gary. I happened to catch a segment of a Football America podcast where Hercules Gomez and Sebastian Salazar were talking, uh, lamenting really, about the perceived failure of the Hudson River Derby. For those not familiar with that term, this rivalry or derby, as the Brits call it, when the two teams are from the same city, is between New York City FC and the Red Bulls. And as the uh, two were discussing the attributes of the failing, like the lack of fans in the stadium and the lack of a real rivalry atmosphere, it reminded me of something you said, Gary, in our last podcast about there being so many games in the U.S. that are just meaningless with both teams having nothing substantial to play for. I think that was prescient regarding you know this failing rivalry and very relevant to our ongoing pro-rel discussion. In this case in particular, and at the time of me catching the Fall America podcast, both of the teams were not in the top seven uh-huh, out of 14 that will make the MLS playoffs. So competitively, maybe there was that much to play for. What I also thought was interesting in their discussion were some of the reasons why they think the rivalry is failing. They talked about the heavy handedness of, you know, MLS pushing the rivalry before it really had the chance to grow organically. I think like most heated rivalries in, in all of sports, really. Along the other reasons that I hope we talk about today, they talked about the nature of the ownership of the teams and how corporate it is. And, and many of these issues are really pro-REL issues. Hercules and, and Seb were all around the topic without really mentioning it directly, so Let's uh, do it for them and explore some of those reasons and how they relate. This is great. I I went through the all your notes
0: and yeah. I found them very good to the point where I, I, there's certainly a podcast episode here. I don't know if we're going to be able to whip out a quality episode in this one take, Terry, at least myself, because while I was reading your notes, a whole bunch of good questions popped into my head with respect to. Digging a little bit further, doing a little bit more research. For instance, you cited some attendance numbers. So one natural thing that comes to mind is historically many people who aren't on the MLS and Kool-Aid have done some research and have found that what is reported attendance isn't actual attendance. And so that's a curiosity that I've always wanted to follow up with. So just to keep the numbers nice and round and simple. If an MLS franchise says that there was 15,000 in attendance, the reality may have been that there were 10 or eight even. And there's some sort of thing with respect to, or some technicality, which is quite convenient, where they say, oh no, it's tickets distributed that are always reported as attendance, which is really odd. I mean, especially in today's day and age, where everything is electronically tracked, You know exactly how many people went through the turnstiles. So I don't know why the actual number isn't reported. So I I would love for us to dig a little bit deeper and figure out what's the real story there and have us be the ones to kind of break. It's not news, right? But break that, break that and give it out to the public because I don't think it's being done or at least not being done well. So that was one thought. I don't know if you have a follow-up to that one comment.
1: I do know that, so you're right, I've read before, and I'll look into it further, that there are comp tickets and a lot of freebies issued that count to the attendance, whether they show up or not, and a lot of them don't. In this case, the actual attendance number on the MLS website was 18,613, but I'll look and see if I can find out how many actually were sitting in the seats, because they described it at 18 out of a capacity of 25, For a a regular game, it's not too bad, but for a proposed rivalry or derby, that's just not cutting it, and that was part of it. So I'll look at that. So uh, any other questions you had? I'll look into those if you just let me know what they are.
0: No, and I agree with you that 18 out of a supposed 25,000 capacity is quite well for a regular season game, in my opinion, anywhere in the world. It's like, oh, 18,000 people, that's pretty good. But the key is what you said. It's supposed to be a rivalry. It's supposed to be a derby. And if you go to any derby in the world, that's a packed house. Um, and so I'm curious now because I actually didn't listen to the video clip that you're referring to with respect to Hercules Gomez and Sebastian. Um, so I just clicked on the link now. I don't know if I play this, if you'll be able to hear it as well. Let me, let's do an
2: experiment. Okay. Yeah, sure. Did it really have that big of a relevance? Yeah. This is, yeah. We were, go back, go back to the early days. The, the first year they had this, I believe they had a sellout at Red Bull Arena. They had that, not- Do you hear that, Terry? Very well. Yes. Oh, awesome. Okay, I'll keep going. Announced attendance of twenty five thousand. The first game between these two at Yankee Stadium, an announced attendance got forty eight thousand. So yes, at okay. one point, at one point, this rivalry was hot and drew drew a big crowd in, in and around New York. Okay, let let me rephrase this. A- at any point, was it ever like an LAFC, LA Galaxy? What is there, Was it ever like a Seattle versus Portland, or even a Montreal? It was on its way, way to Montreal it. versus TFC. Fine. Fine. You you've got a you've got an yearning in your heart for New York to be relevant. And I don't remember it ever being relevant for major league soccer. In, in fact, I don't even know And if, you think that's okay? I don't even know if it matters, Seb. Right, let's look at the relevant cities to date in, in North America. What do you have? You've got two New York teams, two LA teams, you've got a Chicago, Houston, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe a Toronto, if you will. What are the cities? I don't know. Throw out a big city. Here's city. Houston. The thing. Dallas. Okay. How many have playoff bound right now? One, the LA Galaxy. So I don't really know if it matters. I know what you're saying. And it's sad when you see this, this New York versus New York rivalry, because you want to make something of it. But, but this is the, this is the big, I guess, knock on major league soccer is fabricating these rivalries before they're even rivalries. See, I don't know that this is fabricated. Again, I think you can go back to the very beginnings and see that there was a lot of potential here. To me, this screams of ownership that is just let something go to waste. New York is not a market, Herc, that Major League Soccer can let fail. And that's what's happening now. New York City FC is failing. New York Red Bulls are failing. This is your rivalry game, and the stadium is more than half empty. That's not good enough, and this is why When we talk about MLS having a stranglehold on first division status, you can look at a city like New York and say, is this actually what's best for American soccer? Because if that's MLS best effort in New York, simply put Herc, it's not getting the job done. They are not maximizing the soccer market that New York is. You know, Terry,
0: okay, so if you don't mind, something else came to mind here as a possibility. New York, historically speaking, I haven't been there in a while, I visited maybe six years ago or so, and I think it's still true, is like the preeminent melting pot of the United States. We could talk about Florida and a lot of the Latino immigrants there, but New York, uh, you you name a European country or community or culture and it's there, it exists. and And with that in mind, without being derogatory here or anything, but those, I think, are sophisticated football people or more sophisticated football people. They can't pull, you know, pull the wool over their eyes when it comes to football. So when at Major League Soccer, just helicopters in a franchise and there is no organic growth, there's nothing whatsoever, uh, there is no stated set of values that, that were grown or anything with respect to the clubs themselves because they aren't clubs or franchises. I'm just imagining the Italian-American community, the Irish-American community, the Spaniards, the French, the Portuguese, whatever, you name it, it's there in New York. They're not buying it. They aren't going to go to these games, and they certainly aren't going to buy some manufactured rivalry between the towns. That's what came to mind as well.
1: Absolutely. I live on the East Coast, and I travel through New York, and I, I talk to a lot of people that are immigrants on the East coast. And they almost all come through New York at one point. It's the place everyone wants to pick off the map and whether they stay there or not, it's a different story, but there's so many there and you're right. There's every ethnic group in large numbers. And there is a sophisticated football market imported from around the world. And yes, they will fall for any fabricated marketing hype. It's gotta be genuine. It's gotta be quality uh, because they're used to seeing quality elsewhere. And they come with their strong desire to get into the scene, and yet they're struggling. And I think it's a reflection of the product and maybe the ownership and in the environment. MLS is just being too heavy-handed in something that should be organic, and they're trying to force it, and it's not working. So I agree with you. The market should be excellent there, and we'll talk more about some of the reasons why it's not genuine. But as far as the fan base and the numbers they should draw, 18 million people in the New York metropolitan area, at least, and a a lot of those are from European and non-European places where football is very predominant in first culture.
0: Yeah. It also reminds me of the Chivas USA days. Here we go again, from my perspective, the league trying to helicopter in, Uh, I'm always... Torn here between whether they're calling it a club because from their perspective they want it to be a club but it's really a franchise and they helicopter this thing i'll call it a thing terry <laughs> from now on they helicopter this thing into southern california and call it chivas usa with an, the, the obvious intent of which is attracting the mexican-american um uh, population to the stadium, which is a huge demographic here and it's soccer first culture too. It's not like, oh, hey, uh, the Rams or the Raiders were playing that weekend. No, no, no. If I'm, if America and Mexico is playing Chivas Guadalajara, this group th- that comprises of seven figures in population are watching that game and they are not watching the Raiders or the Rams. Okay. So that's not an excuse as to why uh, people are going to the stadium, but They tried and they failed. They tried to force this thing, which is inauthentic, and it failed. And then when Jorge Vergara came and ended up getting the majority stake in Chivas USA and tried to then turn that Titanic of a disaster in the direction of something that is more authentic because he is Mexican through and through. He's the owner of Chivas, Guadalajara. Uh, They didn't want that. The league and, and the demographic here that MLS caters to did not want to see that happen. And so they basically, from my perspective, found a way to get rid of him. And then they just shut down the Chivas USA experiment. And I, I kind of feel that this also has a little flavor of that over there in New York. They want to, you know, tap obviously that huge football first demographic that I'm certain Exists and is very strong and very healthy there, but it's just not happening, which is quite interesting because I saw some of your notes there again, talking about the other sports competing for attention, whether it be baseball or hockey or basketball or whatever, but we're talking about a soccer first culture that is large in number and quite rabid in New York, and they are rejecting this. They, if it was real. They are not going to care about the New York Jets or the Mets or or the, the Islanders or whatever else is out there. Okay. Or the red devils. They're going to go and watch football if they actually had a product that they can relate to and actually can adopt, um, I don't know, some sentimental value. I mean, attach their emotions to Terry and these franchises don't, they don't hook you from an emotional perspective. I think MLS, has a culture whereby they view the sport like many of the other sports here in the States as just pure entertainment. And they think that if they can just offer entertainment in soccer, that the people will come. Build the entertainment and they will come. They miss that other component, the club component, which they don't seem to get, or maybe they do, they just don't care.
1: Well, I can't really address the don't care easily, but let me go back to something you said that I I find very interesting. And I think I've heard you say it before. It would be super interesting if in Southern California, they let a Mexican group build the organization from the get-go and I can't imagine that would not be successful. It would be organically grown. And then I, I just looked at the TV networks there. And I know the viewership on Univision, and Telemundo, Estrella, Unimas is huge when Mexico's playing a game or whether there's a Mexican league game, the TV outpaces MLS. And it's, I'll look and see what the ranking is, but it's up there with the other sports, the you know Dodgers, Lakers, et cetera. It's significant. And if they were given that chance, And it would be a beautiful experiment and you would think if it wasn't such an exclusive club, MLS would try it just as an experiment. Let's try it and see if it works because I think that would be a dunk. And then in, in New York, and I can tell you all the way up to Boston, I go there quite frequently and I love to eat at the north end. It's as authentic Italian food as you can get If there was a local Italian team. In the North End, they would sell and they would have a following. It's just when you're there, you're like, how could you deny this? You're surrounded in this culture that might as well be Italy, and they're all speaking Italian and with Italian accents to you, and the food is outstanding and it's concentrated. And that's just one. Boston's not anywhere near the population of New York, and New York's got those pockets too. And they would gravitate towards this organically grown set. And there could be, again, 15 athletic teams in New York, the neighborhoods that would bond together and the population is so high there compared to, hello, we've got a Hispanic population in, in Raleigh, but the, the density's not there to have that experiment done in North Carolina. However, they would jump on the bandwagon and be fans of, even from California, they would draw an audience here. I'm sure of it.
0: Yeah. They don't want it, Terry, is the bottom line. They don't want outside cultures to own Anything and be able to build anything. It's only their one singular monolithic culture is allowed to own or have control. Okay, sure. They'll allow Mexican to be an owner in a franchise, perhaps, uh, even maybe a majority owner in a particular franchise, perhaps, or an Italian or an Irishman or a Brazilian, wherever, sure. So long as majority ownership of the entire enchilada is theirs. You see, and by the way, just because they allow maybe somebody like Jorge Vergara, again, own a particular franchise. It doesn't mean that that particular owner can do whatever they want with the franchise. They have to abide by the values and, and rules and everything else that comes with being a satellite, uh, little outlet of the big business, which is MLS itself. So you actually aren't an owner in the truest sense of the word. Uh, your hands are completely tied. You can't build it as you want to build it. You have to build it the way within the boundaries that they set forth to you. So that's one thing. They don't want it, Terry. Okay. Now, now, yes. Yeah. So, so, and you might hear some excuses here or there with people. Oh, well, um, it takes a lot of money. You need billionaires. Well, stop. Okay. The ethnic groups that exist all across the country, if we're talking specifically New York, in this case, or in Southern California, people have money, Terry. People have money. Um, Mexican, Mexicans have money, uh, Italians have money, uh, Russians have money, people have money. Um, that's not an obstacle for any of these cultures or ethnic groups to start their own thing and be successful at it and be able to operate it at the highest levels, that's not the issue. And then secondly, you said it'd be interesting to see the experiment happen. Well, they are kind of going to conduct an experiment, Terry, first off. There are data points when Mexican teams come here to the United States and play a game, especially if it's a competitive game against MLS franchises or something, uh the CONCACAF Champions League games, maybe this is something that you can help me look up as well, our our attendance figures where it's a Mexican club versus an MLS franchise, what those numbers look like in the Mexican dense areas here in the states. So if they play like the LA Galaxy, right? Or if they play LAFC or or something like that. If they're going to go play Toronto or something, maybe the numbers are quite different. But the stadiums get filled and it's not an accident that the national team of Mexico plays most or so many other games here in the States Uh, because the United States and MLS knows that the stadium is gonna get full. The Rose Bowl is gonna get full. The Coliseum will get full. You'll get north of 50,000 people in attendance guaranteed. Again, we should do our homework and research, but I think generally this is correct. And I'm getting to your experiment, Terry, because as you well know, it was announced not too long ago that Liga MX and MLS are launching this new league here between their clubs. And I think, I mean, both are obviously going to benefit from this. But there's your experiment. You're going to have competitive games where you have America, Guadalajara, Cruz Azul, Tigres, whoever it is, come and play. And you're going to see the attendance figures, uh, skyrocket for those particular matches. Um, yeah, I'll stop there.
1: I'll try plays the majority of its games in the U S and NFL stadiums. And you can just tell by the volume of who's cheering, who owns the majority of the attendance. U.S. Men's Team, Mexico. I'm just assuming it's proportional to the bodies, but I can't be too far off. But it's undeniable.
0: Their objection, of course, if anybody wants to object to that, is like, "Oh, well, guys, come on, Th- that's the national team. Those are national teams that you're dealing with, so of course attendance is going to be better." But I think they're missing the point. The point is, those people who are attending those Mexican national teams here in the states are soccer first fans that are here in the states, and they're not participating in the MLS, this sort of product that is being rolled out. Sure, they do here or there, okay, but not with any sort of sentiment. Uh, They do view it more as like maybe an entertainment sort of thing. Ah, let's go out, let's get blasted with some beer and nachos or whatever at the game, but they don't feel the colors uh, for the most part. And generally speaking, most of them aren't even going to the games anyways. It's a small subsection of the Mexican American community that is attending.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. The potential is so much bigger than what actually goes. And it, I'll look at the attendance stats. of so those MLS games, the national team, just to compare. And then I'll look at television viewership, which I think says a lot as well. I looked casually in the past. I just have to dig it up. But I, I know your gut reaction is correct.
0: Yeah. So bringing it back to New York then, Terry, yeah. I'm not surprised. Why are we at all surprised that this isn't working out? And the, that one point that I think Sabi started off with and you wrote down in your notes is that in the very beginning, it was a novelty. So people would go, oh, let's go check this thing out. And they would get very large attendance. Uh, and there was noise, you know, being made and stuff, but as time goes on, that dwindles, that goes away. And there's nothing to hook the fans or supporters on something long lasting because it's not, there is, that doesn't exist here. Okay. Oh, the other point before I forget too is many will say, well, this is actually evidence that we don't have a soccer culture in our country because clearly the NFL is closed, baseball is closed, hockey is closed, basketball is closed, and they don't have the issues necessarily that we're talking about here is their claim. Okay. And then they would proceed to the next step and say, that's because there is a gridiron culture in the United States. There's a basketball culture in the United States. There's a baseball culture in the United States and soccer. Uh, it, they don't have that culture. We're working on it, guys. We've only been around for 25 years. We're working on this thing when baseball has been around for a hundred and gridiron for however long it's been around. So that is their objection. And I can understand where they're coming from.
1: Wait, uh, no, no, no. I'll offer this as evidence. There's been talk lately about the TV rights for the Premier League in the U.S. And you see a number from 2 to $3 billion. There is a soccer culture here. There's that, and they want something that they can claim
0: is theirs, That's something that they can latch onto. So I understand their logic trail, okay? It makes sense, but it only makes sense if they don't see the full picture. And the full picture is you're only talking about a small slice of American soccer fandom, not American soccer fandom, soccer fandom in the United States. You're only looking at a small slice. You're looking at the slice that is MLS and that's it. And you're discarding all the other people who are soccer first cultures in our country who ignore MLS and you just discard them. That's what they do. They don't think those people exist for some reason, Terry, even though there's A a mountain of evidence suggesting that those people are in this country, they're soccer rabid, they're soccer hungry. They're just not represented because they can't grow their own clubs. They can not grow things in their own cities to be represented. So why me as an Italian American, for instance, or let's be real, an Argentine American, okay, there's no Argentinian or South American slash Latino because it doesn't have to be Argentinian. It could just be like there could be a club here locally in Southern California that's owned operated by people with that South American culture, but authentic that they are from there or they were first generation here or whatever. And they have the same views that I have. Right. And they express themselves on the sidelines. If it's the coach or the technical staff, the way that I relate to the way that I want to see my club uh, behave and the players that they acquire and get, or, you know, They prefer the type of player that plays that style of football. Okay. So I relate to that too. And then the owner comes on TV or um, whenever they do press conferences and they speak their minds the way that I speak my mind and my culture speaks uh, uh, their minds. And it's not, yeah, you, you understand what I'm getting at here. That could exist here. And then. I bet you, I bet I would be get hooked to that club. I really would. I'd get hooked to it. And people like me would get hooked to it because they represent me. They speak or I speak through them. They are a proxy for my social, political, economic, cultural views. Maybe not a hundred percent, but certainly to a, a greater degree of alignment than what currently exists here. And what currently exists, if we're talking about me specifically is the galaxy and LAFC, and they do not represent my, my values. Um, no, we're not aligned. And so that's really what people are missing here when they have this debate. And, and there is a soccer culture here. We're not allowed to represent ourselves. We're not allowed to have others represent us and we can't build. We're handcuffed. We basically either have to accept their product or not participate. That is the issue here. You either accept MLS and what they're putting on display, or you just don't
1: participate, sorry. Yeah, you've got no choice, which is awful. There's not just a soccer culture. Every ethnic soccer culture in enough population in the United States, maybe unlike anywhere else, could put that salad together and it doesn't have to go through the blender and make mush, it can be. Discrete and survive on its own. And I have no doubt that would, that would be attractive. It would flourish. It would crush the status quo at the top. And you wonder if it's, is it intentional? You know, you don't know in their mindset, but boy, the evidence looks like it's intentionally made to suppress that because it could succeed. But in a case where even if it was a franchise and you were allowed some freedom, the economics is pooled. So. It would be good for the group if they did that and it succeeded and, or at least tried it. And maybe it succeeded once and they go, oh shit, we can't do this. They'll take over the whole place. And all right, or at least one place would succeed a little bit and it would be refreshing to see.
0: I don't know. It, it's, it, it's like, a curiosity, it's a curiosity of mine too, but I would speculate. Let me give you the, let me offer you the following scenario. Let's say they did that experiment. Okay, Gary, you say that there's all this Latino American thing going on down there in Southern California, fine. You and your investor group, you know, billionaires or whatever, we're going to give you the green light. Go off and build. There's going to come a time and almost upon launch or even pre-launch, okay, where our club is going to say or do things that are going to be looked at as unsavory by the monolithic culture that dominates the game here. And then even before we get off the ground, they'll want to shut it down. There's going to be issues and, and the league will have no choice, right? The conglomerate will have no choice, but to say, oh, sorry. Yeah, we don't subscribe to, I don't know what it is, Let's there make it think. simple. We don't. We. I. I. I we don't. Subscri- Spanish. Yeah, we don't subscribe to you. Only you know, holding press conferences in Spanish or making Spanish the the priority. That might be a problem already because the people will claim go crazy. Will start claiming like uh, discrimination. If I only speak Spanish when I can speak English, or if it came out that maybe I'm looking for a Spanish speaking coach. Right. And so I go, what do you mean? Discrimination. You should get the best person for the job, even though US soccer, and there was a little bit of a stink, but they put brushing under the rug. You remember when they were looking for the next national team coach after Jurgen Klinsmann? There was a a, a requirement that it had to be an English speaking first coach uh, for the job. So there's a symmetry to this. But the asymmetry comes in and who controls the game and they control the game. So if I'm looking for a Spanish speaking coach, maybe that shuts us down already. If that were to come to light, or if I just openly said it, or my investors said it or whatever, and maybe if I get Cholo Simeone to, to coach the team and he's gesturing that he's grabbing his balls on the side of the, on the touchline or whatever. Oh my God, yep. can you imagine the uproar and that's so unsavory and show some class and it happened just this past weekend uh, in the Champions League when Atletico Madrid played Liverpool, I believe. And Cholo Simeone, after uh, Liverpool won 3-2 in the dying moments, I think there was a PK or something. I didn't watch the game, Terry. But Simeone, the whistle, final whistle blew, and he just ran into the locker room. He ran out and didn't shake Klopp's hand or whatever. And already people here in the... Oh, my God, show some class. And listen... Different cultures do different things. And I understand where you are coming from saying that is not a classy thing to do, but either was it classy for American revolutionaries to not stand in single file lines and exchange bullets with their British counterparts back during the the war of independence. That wasn't classy either. Or if you can't, don't know how to drink tea the proper way, like the queen of England you'd be considered a non-classy person. So all these people who, you know, lob these self-righteous, I don't know, I'm classy, you're not, my culture is classy and yours is not, really need to take a look in the mirror a little bit because I'm sure if I went to dinner with many of them, they probably wouldn't know how to use a fork and knife the proper way to cut a steak, okay? And so, but this is just the reality. And so it's silly. If I were to hire Cholo Simeone and he behaves the way that he is authentically and genuinely, because this is part of his being and his culture, they might want to shut us down, Terry. You see? Or if we tolerate you get? yeah, yep. or if we tolerate a particular player saying a certain thing, you know, on the field because that is how he grew up speaking in Argentina or Brazil or Venezuela or whatever and we don't reprimand them or fire him or whatever, we, that might shut us down too, Terry. So you see, I don't think we can conduct the experiment here. Because might be right. when things like this pop up and their primary demographic is of a monolithic culture and they start try, jumping in saying, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe the league has allowed this to happen or whatever, the league's going to eventually fold and capitulate and say, I'm sorry, we have to cut you out.
1: Yeah, I believe what you're saying because we've been to some of those places, your your heritage is from there, but I visited luckily through being blessed with the ability to travel in the football world and and it's different. You can feel it's different. I don't speak much Spanish at all and I can tell you that you step out of the car in the parking lot in South America and at the youth level, there's a tension there and it's palpable and it's hard to explain why. And then I hear something that would never fly here is when you ride home with your father in the car, he's analyzing your game in very harsh terms to his eight year old and his 10 year old and whatever. And the people here would be like, ah, you're killing the fun and all that stuff. Well, they seem to survive that and different, but here it would be a problem. And that's just one of a series of things you're talking about. Speaking Spanish, grabbing your nuts on the sidelines, (laughs) ignoring the other coaching. And was Klopp upset about it? I doubt it. Price, oh, that's just the way he is. No problem. No offense. And if he wants to have a beer later, I'll have a beer with him. And and it's not a big deal. If you're imposing your values from the outside in, it's a problem. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong. What's unfortunate, Terry, though, is that that is what
0: makes football work, is allowing all these different cultures and different value systems kind of compete with one another because people use their club or their national team as a proxy again, for their social, political, economic, cultural value systems. When the U S beats Mexico, people feel kind of vindicated. And so I don't know if that's the right word, but kind of feel like we are superior to you. Yeah. When Argentina yeah. beats Brazil, Brazil beats Argentina, there is that sort of clash of value systems, okay? My tribe versus your tribe. And that is what it gets things so freaking heated, okay? So here in the States, if we were allowed to build that club that I just described, kind of with that sort of Latino fire and passion and angle and fine. If people want to hate us, you know, the, the proper classy culture, as they want to call themselves, that's what makes it awesome. Because then people will go to the stadiums because they fucking hate us. You know what I'm saying? And they want us to lose so fucking bad and vice yep. versa. We want to fucking yep. kick their ass, go fuck yourself. Right. And so and it's a dark, well, that's a rivalry, right? Yes. That, was, that is what builds it for real. So when people talk about, oh, we've got, LASC versus the galaxy, or your example of a failing one, New York city. And and I'm like, what a joke. These are not rivalries guys. Okay. These are intra office scrimmages that, you know, they try to manufacture some, some minimal degree of animosity towards one another somehow. Oh, you're not LA really you're in Carson. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) compare that to what I just described.
1: You know what I mean? It's just not real. Yep. And let let me say, one other thing from my experience for it, forget, uh, where was I? Scotland was playing a replay of a game long ago. It's, it was like, uh, important Europa but, or European playoff game. And it was 20 years since. Right. And the intensity was so bad. I thought there was going to be a fight for sure. And there's the the wedge of empty seats. There's the barbed wire. There's the police and everything. And I thought for sure it was going to be brutality in the parking lot. Not a problem. As much as the language was horrible, the gestures and everything during the game, they went outside and everyone's looking at how to get to the public transportation. No problem. But during that time, I thought, God, if there wasn't that barrier there, whatever this was going to be. And I was totally wrong. It was right there, but it was not going to happen. And I didn't know that, but I was worried about, all right, how am I going to get out of here with my two kids under supervision and in safety? That crossed my mind. And then I got out in the parking lot and there people are walking in there, you know, teasing each other a little bit. It was a great game and, and everything. That and was the last second goal cool to tie it up, but not not a problem. And if they would have played the next night, it would have been up to fever pitch again, during the game and yeah. off to the mutual neutral quarters to celebrate after the game. And it was, it was okay. And I, I had to live through that to to believe it. You know, because they yeah. put helicopter you at any given moment. I've said, I need, I need a security guard here. So, <laughs> and I was totally naive and stupid, but I learned it was fun. And I look back at it and now, ah, oh, I'd go to that game in a heartbeat again. Heartbeat.
0: And there might be outbreaks here or there across the world that where incidents happen, violence. But that happens in, in everything, Terry. It's just the news here. Try you know this more. Oh, they try to blow it completely out of proportion, and then all yes. of a sudden it's just another method to clamp down even further on all of us and what it is we can say, can't say. I mean, yeah, I don't have to go any further than that. But the other thing I wanted to mention is after everything we've just described as to how the intensity of a real rivalry um, manifests itself and why it manifests itself, uh, it's a clash of cultures, a clash of tribes, that also begins to address the other misguided notion that football is just a sport, just the game, where the the objective is to win some trophy or some piece of metal that you're going to lift at the end of the season. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So in the scenario that exists across the world, it does not matter that SDA bar is not going to win La Liga. It does not matter. They're going in knowing they're not going to win La Liga, just like 14 other teams know that there's, they're not going to win La Liga. But that's not the fucking point. Okay. It is a clash of tribes. It is a clash where maybe you are the small David and you're playing the big Goliath, okay, on your home turf or even away. And there is something to play for, even though you, you know 99% of the time you will not win that game, but you might tie a game. You might actually pull out a win, even if you have 25, 30% of possession. And that in and of itself, gives that community something that's priceless. Okay, you can't buy that emotion in people. You can't actually pay a person x number of euros or dollars or whatever and have them feel that sensation that they would have if A bar beats Real Madrid and ruins their title hopes or really or damages their title hopes or causes their manager to get fired in the next press conference. You know what I mean? Like these are the things that are, you actually live for. These are great things. They're just as good, if not better than winning a stupid trophy at the end. So every club is competing on a different strata where they are competing for different things. Sure. Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, maybe a Valencia or Sevilla are battling for that trophy as well. That's part of their thing. But if you're not one of those clubs, it doesn't mean that you, you're meaningless, it, you're absolutely competing for something.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't have to be just promotion, to be fair, right? Mm-hmm. It is that knock them out of the Europe, knock them out of Champions League. And then I think you said this before, give one of their players a consecutive yellow. He has to miss the next game. That's They'll work on anything in that level. And it's good. And they feel as just if they've got promoted or they won the trophy or whatever, emotionally, it's as high as they get and it lasts for half a season, or maybe it's the the year or whatever, and we have those rivalries in in the United States. We have them certainly. The Red Sox Yankees is is a very good rivalry, just to name one that uh, you know, a lot of people know about and, and experience. And it's intense, and it's got nothing to do with winning the playoff. It's winning the little series that they have of you know three or four games in a long weekend or a midweek thing. And and a lot of guys are good for the year until we play again. And us, all right, we won the pilot or not? Okay, that's great too, but beat the fucking yankees head and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. vice versa and so we know we can have it it's just that that situation was i would wager that it was organically developed over you know 120 years of baseball or whatever it is but it's, it's more than that now but that's that's something different than mls branding this a rivalry before they play the first game or the they're into the third game or the fourth game in the series, that's not enough to grow that hatred that's required for these rivalries. But the conversation that was in the recording raised a good thing. Portland, Seattle, you might have been there, but uh, I look at it. It looks like one.
0: I've been to Portland versus Seattle and it's definitely yeah. a lot better than the other ones, but it's, yeah. it's nothing compared to what we've just finished describing that exists across the world. That's still very clean, innocuous. I'm trying to think of all the synonyms uh, that are applicable, relatively speaking here. Um, yeah. It's benign, really. Yeah. Benign, benign. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah, Yankees, Red Sox, like you've been saying hundred, 125 years, but see, that is their argument though, Terry, right? To maintain the status quo. That is their argument. Oh, so basically they want, they also want the green light from the American public to be on the 120 year plan. So MLS is on the 120-year plan, so that my great grandkids <laughs> end up having that sort of r- rivalry because they were born into something that already existed. And I'm sorry, but that's not okay. Um, we need an open system
1: for sure. Let me circle back on a thing we just touched on briefly, but I want you to expound on. So the ownership in these cases, uh, in this New York Derby. Uh, they're foreign-owned, uh, for lack of a better term, but they're big conglomerate-owned where their American teams are not their main interest. For example, New York City FC's ownership is uh, 80% City Football Group and 20% Yankee Global Enterprises, who owns the Yankees. So if you're going to be a entity in that organization superset, and you're in there with the Yankees. You are a flea on the dog. I'd like your take on that. And just to be, let's see, Red Bulls are owned, obviously, by Red Bull GMBH. They're headquartered in Austria. They own stakes in RB Leipzig, RB Salzburg, RB Brazil, RB Brangantino, RB Ghana, and then FC the Salzburg Feeder Clubs. Can you develop the culture that you want with an ownership that is so far removed from the local even physical stadium. And another part of the conversation, New York teams don't even play in New York. They play in New Jersey, et cetera. But let's talk about the ownership and, and whether that is just an impossible situation to grow what we want, with the caveat that City Football Group owns a pretty damn good franchise over in Europe.
0: The question comes up to my mind is what is too corporate? What is too corporate? Certainly there's a spectrum from being wholly organic, community-owned, built from scratch, bootstrapped your way up sort of thing on one end, and then then on the other end is perhaps what you've just described, a a super corporate sort of entity that helicopters in a Walmart into your neighborhood or something. So how, how, how much of a warm, fuzzy is the community going to get with the helicoptered, Walmart versus Jim and, and Joanne's uh, market on the corner. That's been there 30 years and and have grown it from, from the ground floor. So that's the spectrum, right? And somewhere and everything lies in, in between, I don't know, but when it comes to the success of the club and it, if we're talking about attendance, if we're talking about competing on the sporting side of the equation, um, I mean, nowadays, Terry, the way I'm seeing football being very corporatized everywhere across the world, there are plenty of examples where it works. I do see like, I mean, take Roman Abramovich, who bought Chelsea, I think in like 2003 or so. Here comes this Russian oil oligarch and has billions right in his portfolio outside of football, buys the football club. And I would, I would wager that Chelsea, its fans, its supporters, its community, its city is doing quite well. Now it, it it's not a known, he's not a no known corporate brand like a Red Bull or a city football group, but nonetheless. I would think that they're basically the same thing. It's just maybe that Roman Abramovich, it seems from the outside, because I'm not there, that he's intimately connected with the day-to-day operations of the club. And maybe that might be the distinguishing factor because he himself is part of the Chelsea brand now. And he himself shows his face to the supporters and speaks and gives opinions and does all these sorts of things. So there's a connection to the top of the pyramid and maybe that's the difference Terry. I don't know with say like a red bull or a city football group where who owns city football group. I don't know those guys or that guy. And I never heard them speak. And I'm sure they do, but you, it's not Roman Abramovich and the same with, and same with uh, red bull. But I would say like all the big clubs everywhere, it's very corporatized Terry, but they're not having, I mean, there are tensions, right? The, Arsenal has tensions with the supporter groups and the club ever since Arsene Wenger left and the American owners yeah. uh, came Same with Manchester United or whatever. There are growing tensions, but it can be done. Um, I don't know how to answer your well, question it, to be honest.
1: mentioned something that's interesting of your example is there's a name to that one story and then there's a corporate identity to the other where you don't have a name. A big corporation's got no, no definition, no personality reflected. And then here you're talking about a guy who's, I don't know how many coaches he went through, but personally to do that, he's got to be tied to the game. And he's like, damn it. They're not playing the way I want. He's out. They're not winning like I want. He's out. That's more of your organic culture. And then he's taking over a team that's had decades and decades and decades of building up a culture. So he's inheriting one as opposed to starting a new franchise in the MLS and nobody knows anything. There's no history, et cetera, et cetera. And Let's think, in MLS, do we have a flamboyant owner?
0: I don't think so. I think uh, they're all uh, invisible. <laughs> they're they're exactly all invisible. Different. They're all like NFL o- owners or the owner of Home Depot or whatever. And they might make a statement here or there, but they play the politically correct corporate businessman card. They're in the shadows. Uh, there's nobody, certainly nobody flamboyant, like you're saying, Terry. No.
1: Yeah. Low culture, right? And the. It's okay if the culture comes from the top guy or the coach. It's interesting, right? Otherwise it's sterile. They treat it.
0: Well, that might be, well, that might be it, Terry. They treat it exclusively as an asset versus treating it as more than an asset. And I think the owners of PSG and Roman Abramovich and those guys, they feel attached. They have their egos attached to this club. Uh, they use the club as an expression of themselves. And so it's quite different in that regard than just treating it as an asset. They don't, and the evidence is in that they probably they don't care if they lose a billion dollars on this thing. I think Steven Szymanski who wrote, what did he write again? Oh gosh, can you look that up, Terry? Steven Szymanski. Yeah. I probably have to go in a little bit too and we can pick this up later if that's okay. Steven Szymanski. He's an economist out of Michigan who oh. who wrote a couple of soccer books uh from the economics angle. I forgot how to write his name. Right. University of Michigan is what I know we can find him doing that.
1: Okay. All right, I will look into that. Let's see.
0: Soccernomics, I think was the name of his book.
1: Yeah. Did he write that book?
0: Yeah, he wrote that book. That's the one. Yep. Soccernomics. Um, anyways, I, I, I kind of perused through the book. I never really really gave it a good read and I've just seen little blips here and there, but I think he makes the argument or the case with data that many of these clubs are like the playthings or play toys of the ultra ultra wealthy and that's why it probably has a personality terry like you're saying instead of some corporation just coming in amazon like we were talking about last time amazon just buying a franchise here and they're going to call it amazon north carolina amazons
1: (laughs) (laughs) or whatever you're right he did write socronomics. so uh, does your guy shoot i'm anyways that was that was a pretty poor
0: segment on on my part anyways with respect to the corporate but yeah, yeah I, I, I'm I'm not exactly sure whether or how big of an influence it is on New York City FC or Red Bull New York to that they are corporate owned and hence it is or isn't working. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I would argue, yeah, look, I would argue, Terry, if I had to argue, it's all our previous download instead of it, that being the reason why it fails and there is no rivalry and attendance is down. And I just happen to be, yeah. I just happen to think it's, well, that's what MLS is. So.
1: Okay. Let's finish on this one question I've been meaning to ask you. So what if this MLS success is just a house of cards <sighs> or does something come out that's sustainable, that's likable, that's surviving because of your artificial scarcity that you've talked about and the fact that they can expand and create that buzz over the new MLS team, but who's doing well five years later? Yeah, that's that's
0: a curious question. Obviously, uh, you know, we would need the the hard data, hard numbers to do a full-blown analysis.
1: COVID's screwing the data up a little bit right now, and I put this in the notes. We can't be fooled by increasing attendance for MLS. Well, they keep adding teams. Of course, it's likely to go up. It's the average per game. Yeah. and. And they're all down, but I've got to extract the COVID problem because uh, that's a legitimate reason for it not to be good. Do we have enough history in MLS to see that trajectory? I don't know. I have a feeling other than the value of the franchise that you've talked about, and for those reasons, that is on the positive trajectory. And they can always point to that as success. Look, the value of the team, blah, blah, blah. The TV rights are going to go up a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. But is the viewership increasing proportionally? Is the attendance at the gate? Is the revenue? I'll try to look into that and see because I'm I'm not sure.
0: If we could get hard data, hard time series data for every franchise, maybe we can perform some sort of analysis. I don't know if it's been done out there. I'm sure it has. But again, we don't have the insider financials. Okay. But at least we can look at some sort of yeah, some sort of, some of that sort of data that is publicly available and make some educated inferences.
1: Um, yeah, i it's like to do that and see.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to sustainability, the football clubs, bleh, I don't know.
1: Or ask another way, without the excitement of expansion, does the league succeed?
0: Yeah, or does it eventually kind of completely stagnate and then there's an inflection point and it's all downhill from there?
1: Yeah, I think parody can ruin it. It's really weird, Terry, because
0: they might not even have to expand with new franchises. They could do things like what they did with Chivas USA. They can just shut down a franchise and then reopen it with new branding. And that I think is just the equivalent of helicoptering and a brand new sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a crutch. It's totally possible relocating the franchise. Again, without the expansion, you create that new buzz, but that's going to go away. It's not the shiny toy unless the quality of the product is there. The quality yeah. of the product's there. Yeah. You should be able to give the people's time on the uh, weekend to go and spend the money. And
0: that's I think that's what they've done too, Terry, is over the course of time, the league has evolved the way it's operated with respect to the quality of the product also. Uh, now more than ever, they've increased the franchise budgets, uh, the caps. Uh, they made new segments of the roster eligible for higher pay with new initiatives. And so all of a sudden, all these franchises are able to go and get the sh- one of the shiny 22-year-old Uh, Colombians from South America and bring it in here and have them light, light the league on fire with goals or whatever. And so more than the club itself, maybe the refreshers that keep interest alive is just that roster sort of recycling. It's like, get rid of guys on the roster, bring in a Slatan Ibrahimovic. And the Slatan Ibrahimovic gives you a spike in interest that'll, that'll last you two years. And then you just need another one. Oh, let's get Chicharito Hernandez, the Mexican over here. Boop, there's your other spike. That'll last you for another two years, but they're, they're nonstop transients. Right. Instead of just a constant as a result of being an authentic club with authentic supporters that are lifelong and, and feel attached to it. No, they're transients because the fan base that they attract are transients. They're casual. Good point. All right, let's end there. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level. And so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, my co-host Terry in this episode founded the Accelerator Schools. There's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers, everyone, and keep building.